Jaspreet Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR, Reality Check Radio. Welcome back to Reality Check Radio, Greenwashed with Don and Jaspreet. Great to have your company this morning. Uh, we've also got the company of a hard case, a uh, hard case from Banks Peninsula. He calls himself an enviropreneur. I call him perhaps an eco-anarchist. Uh, he's into regenerative and organic agriculture. He's into uh, seaweed harvesting, blue pearl um, culturing, and many more things. So we welcome to Greenwashed, Roger Beatty. Good to see you, Roger. Hello. Yeah, so you've got a lot on your resume, a lot. Uh, where will we start? Should we start right at the beginning, uh, where you were born? And your dad, I gather, was an inventor, and it's probably where you got your verve for um, being inventive yourself. Would that be right? That's true. You know, my father was the um, the brains behind uh, BD insulators which he started in uh, 1959. And um, he had, I think when he died, he'd had 50 patents to his name. So he was always coming up with better ways of doing things. Hmm. So where was that from? It was, I, I, I sort of have a recollection you told me, and I have known on Roger for about 20 years, uh, somewhere up Kaikoura way, was that? Yes, that right? yeah. No, my father was managing a farm in Seddon, the Haldens, and he developed the insulators there. And then 10 years later, he bought a property in Kaikoura and um, and carried the business on, and it just grew and grew. Mm. And so for listeners, when we talk about insulators, we're talking about insulators for electric fencing, um, which actually, uh, as a farmer myself, uh, Electric fencing revolutionised New Zealand's grazing systems, um, made New Zealand a much smarter, you know, to be able to effectively subdivide paddocks and sell graze and um, graze better, uh, not only winter crops, but through the summer as well, uh, revolutionised New Zealand as much as I would say the quad bike did. Uh, well, in fact, more than the quad bike. Um, so we're, we're, we're grateful for people like Roger's dad. Now, Roger, your formative years, you're, again, a bit of a rebellious sort of character, I think. You just wanted to get out and make a buck, and you ended up on Chatham Islands pretty quickly, I gather. Yes, I, well, I, I was, uh, after school, I worked on the farm like lots of lads do, and figured out after about a year that I was um, not going to take over the farm anytime soon. So I went to university for a year. And then instead of sitting finals, I went on a sharing course and um, learned to share. And then about a month later, an advert appeared in the paper, in the press, for an experienced sharer. <laughs> and since I was the only um, person to apply for this job on the Chathams, I got the job and fell in love with the Chathams. Yeah, and it didn't do you badly over the next sort of 15, 20 years either. But let's talk about the Chathams for a moment. Um, what, 800 k's off the east coast of New Zealand, um, very isolated, 
uh, sort of three or four main islands, I recall. Is that, is that right? And quite hard to get into. You just can't yeah. rock up in a boat and expect to get off anywhere. Yeah, two main islands. Um, Chatham Island's about the same size as Banks Peninsula. And Pitt Island is about 15,000 acres. So I spent about 18 months on Pitt and about 15 years on main Chatham Islands. Yep. And there's some, um, I, in part of your, your discussion, I see on, on Google searches, uh, you mixed with names like the Tuanui's and uh, and others, and I recall those are very much Chatham Island names. Um, is is Roger Beatty's name etched in the in the rocks over there? <laughs> well, my nicknames probably are. <laughs> well, well, tell us what a nick, what, what would a nickname be? Would it be something like Mister pa- Mister Power? Orange Ruffy. Oh, Dollar. Um, you know, there, there were quite a few nicknames, and everyone, um, you know, on the Chathams was a bit of a character. And the the more character you had, the more nicknames you had. And I, I unfortunately had a few. Right, but you know, I've only been to the Chathams once, and what I observed was you work hard, you play hard. And you can make a lot of money because uh, there's not a lot of opportunity to spend your money over there. Um, so you have to bring it back to the mainland, and clearly you have done that. Uh, but but on the on on the Chathams, your your main reason for being was what power diving and power diving was where I made my money. Yeah, right, right, and and so. Coming back to the mainland, um, you bought some properties, and you also managed to bring back some of the wild or the farmed and wild sheep from from Pitt Island, and you've grown a flock of quite alternative-looking animals compared to what New Zealand used to have as uh, the standard flock of robins. Well, um, in the first few years that I was on the Chathams, I, I had a contract to cull um, wild sheep on Pitt Island, and... Um, I culled about three and a half thousand wild sheep over about a, an eighteen-month period, and towards the end of that project, I thought, "By hell, these sheep are tough." Every single you hoggett had a lamb. There was virtually no fly strike. They were competing against five hundred pigs. Lots of skewer gulls, and um, you know they were being shot. Yet they were very, very healthy. So when we bought a farm on Banks Peninsula, we um, we flew ten out, and then I bred the numbers up from there. You just flew ten out, and you bred up to a couple of thousand. <clears throat> well, we bought we bought more as well, but. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, when you're keeping everything and not selling anything, the numbers breed up quite quickly. <laughs> yeah, like like uh, like weckers. Uh, we'll get onto that in a minute. Um, but just just staying with the wool side of this for a minute. Um, your reason for, or and the sheep and and the pit island sheep. Your reason for doing that was their hardiness, their um, resilience in terms of the environment they're in. You brought them back to the Banks Peninsula. And you farm them in a um, 
uh, in a manner in a way that you would deem organic or regenerative and you find that they don't need much in the way of animal remedies is that how i understand it to be um i'm an anti-vaxxer when it comes to sheep <laughs> right so, um, <laughs> we haven't vaccinated an animal in 30 years mm. and you don't need to Yep. What about antibiotics? No antibiotics? What are antibiotics? There you go. There's the answer to that. And uh, and no no uh, artificial anthelmintics, I imagine. No, 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 none. So the ultimate easy care farm. Now, the, the key thing for me to understand and for, for listeners perhaps is the profitability of a farm like that. Uh, effectively, you market under your own brand, I assume? Yes, we are. Well, I'm lying here or sitting on a couch and you can see this blanket. This is this is one of our wild products mm. from our wild sheep. Yep. It's yep. Um, 50% Pit Island wild sheep, 25% possum, 25% merino. And it's, um, here's a dog here that you can't keep off this blanket. <laughs> That's a good advert. Look, I've, I've and, had a... And dogs know better than humans. <laughs> I can vouch for the product. Uh, I've had a, um, a set of uh, wild socks and uh, they were the go-to socks on a cold winter's night in Southland. So uh, don't, this is not to be... Um, a marketing show. We shouldn't endorse any product, but uh, there you go. <laughs> but but you have done. You have endorsed to me. And uh, for listeners, yeah. this is Wild with a Y. W Y L D is the brand. Uh, but uh, going on to further interest, you didn't just get the sheep off uh, onto Banks Peninsula. You also dabbled in Wicca, and along with it came a whole battle with Doc. In fact, uh, the, the first article I ever saw on you, Roger, was the one that says conservation kills and uh, a couple of weeks ago we had another guest out here jerry ekoff and his property in central otago made tells me for a very long time bore the sign doc where land goes to die so shall we go on your battles with doc there please okay well um funnily enough going back sort of 35 years ago i i worked quite closely with um, the wildlife service, which were the people before DOC. And mm -hmm. um, I was um, pretty active with helping things like the, the um, Black Robin program. I, mm -hmm. you know, I was only a minor, a minor influence on that, but it, it was so significant that they took five black robins and now they've got hundreds. And just being in and around those people is very inspiring, you know, to be able to get a breed that was almost extinct and then bring them back from the brink. You know, those people were exceptional. You know, the Geordie Mermans of this world are just amazing people. And it gets into your blood. And, you know, Weka was one of those things on the Chathams. Weka are uh, everywhere. In fact, Weka were 
<coughs> taken to the Chathams in 1905 um, for grass grub control because there were no weka on the Chathams. And they died out on the mainland on the east coast of the South Island in about the 1930s. And it's Doc's policy to repatriate all native species back to their home range. And I thought, well, this will be easy. We, mm-hmm. we built New Zealand's first large predator-proof reserve and applied for a permit to transfer and to hold weka. And initially, it was relatively easy. But by the time we got to the, like, third time we applied, it became really difficult. So what changed from the first time to the third time, Roger? Um, Doc got more political. Um, Naitahu got involved. Um, And, you know, there were just people that were opposed to private conservation. And I believe that there are a large number of people within DOC that would rather have species die out than have them saved privately. That's a terrible thing to say, but I think it's true. And yet yeah. you spoke so well about uh, the uh, outfit, I, I've forgotten the name, before DOC, the conservation people you work with, you were all praised for them a moment ago. But Doc now... Well, well so- they were they were exceptional people. Mm-hmm. Um, the Wildlife Service was the hardest government job to secure. They only selected about three or four per year, and you had to be unbelievably good to become a Wildlife Service officer. They worked them hard, but they were bloody good at doing what they were doing. Yeah, and so um, what what has changed? DOC became established. Uh, there was activism on the fringes from, you know, and I, and I have no um, derogatory comments to make about the activist organisations, uh, that everyone has their right to uh, an opinion and their activism. Uh, but you had the likes of Forest and Bird, Fish and Game, uh, and others uh, on the fringes. Did they make it uh, that DOC became seriously politicised? Did they sort of encourage that politicisation and therefore less of the uh, free enterprise that you're talking about? Because I know you're big on um, uh, private property rights uh, are generating the best or as good conservation out- outcomes in, this, in, the, in the preservation of, say, an endangered species. And you seem to have been... Um, obstructed so yeah something changed didn't it roger something changed well i think there were always people who were um uh negative on private conservation but you know it's okay to have people arguing the opposite case but when it gets politicized and then they change policies and it becomes government policy not to support private conservation. Hmm. That's when it's bad. 
Mm. And, you know, outfits like, as you said, Forest and Bird, those outfits, um, you know, are, are not market-oriented people. They're not farmers. They're not fishermen. They're not property rights owners. They have no idea the way the, way the real world works. And, you know, one of the things I've said for quite some time is no farmed species has ever died out. And, and we need to be farming those species that are suited to farming. And, mm. and weka are perfectly suited to farming. They have, we've had up to 17 from one pair in a year, and you can farm a pair on a quarter-acre piece of land. So you don't need a lot of land. And I've worked through the numbers and you can make, you can gross as much money farming wicker on what I think are realistic um, selling prices. You can compete with dairy. In fact, you can do it alongside dairy. It's crazy, you know. Why aren't we farming wicker? Wicker are one of the tastiest birds you've ever come across. And so I was going to ask you that, what is the taste like? <clears throat> well, it's sort of a um, it's sort of a bit like lamb, a bit like non-greasy mutton bird, a bit like tasty chicken, um, a bit like duck, but not as strong. It's it's moorish. Hmm. You know, you can't eat just a little bit of wecker. One of the great things about feasts on the Chathams, whether it's a tangi or a hui or a wedding or whatever, there's always crayfish, power, blue cod and wecker on the menu, you know, a la carte, you know, or smorgasbord, and um, the wecker is, no matter how much is there, is always the first thing to go. Well, I haven't tasted any myself, but uh, keen to keen to get some one day, um, Roger. So, the hurdles that are still a bit still around. Uh, what what is the obstructions today to continuing this quest of yours to perhaps get Weka into the commercial? Uh, field? Uh, we need what? to um, change the head people in dock. We need farming-type people. You know, New Zealand has the world's worst record for um, bird species being lost, um, yet we have the world's best record for looking after fisheries. And they're both managed in the opposite way. Mm -hmm. New Zealand fisheries, no matter which way you measure it, is the healthiest commercial and recreational fisheries in the world. Yet our bird species, we've killed more over the years um, and we've got lots and lots on the endangered list. And in order to save them, we need to get 
closer to business, not further away. So so the reason a lot of the birds died out in New Zealand is through predators, I I, I gather. What's, what's the remedy for, and do you support predator-free New Zealand by 2050? Is that an ambition that's that's useful? And secondly, is it an ambition that's even attainable? It, both. Yes, it is. Um, innovation is fantastic. We've developed a number of traps ourselves. Um, there's probably 50 different traps in New Zealand now for catching stoats and ferrets in particular. They're the two worst. Um, in 10 years' time, there will be an order of magnitude more than that. We will solve the predator problem. Um, you know, there's lots of people working on it. So what's your thoughts about um, potentially gene gene um, manipulation in terms of uh, yeah, the mustelid population? Uh, no, or... no need. No need no. for it. So how would, how, would, how would you get the last predators out of the back blocks of Fiordland um, using traps and people when it's as steep as can be and you can't get to these places? Drones, modern technology, um, tunnel traps, you know, 101 ways. Um, you know, they've got rid of New Zealand leads the world in getting rid of predators on islands. We can do it on a grand scale. And the reason I ask listeners is because we've got inventor Roger Beatty here, uh, and heritage of inventors in his family. And yeah, his ideas are the sort of ideas that will solve the problems that uh, clearly we face with regard to predators. Um, yeah, so look, uh, every idea is something that should be investigated. Look, we should move on um, to your next business, um, the seaweed business and you know the harvesting of kelp. And what spurred, spurred you on to do that? Well, originally, um, I was power diving and, you know, every time I dived in most areas, um, again, there would be less power there than the time before. So I got involved with New Zealand's head scientist on power and he was very keen on reseeding. So we got a big reseeding program organised for the Chatham Islands to put small power back in the ocean. And towards the end of that three-year project, I thought it'd be quite good to farm some of these. <coughs> so we put some power in barrels and put them in the water. And in order to feed power, you've got to feed seaweed. So I, so I had, <laughs> I got permits and licenses to harvest seaweed, and then it went on from there to expanding our power farming operation, and and then we um, moved on to selling kelp. Um, for both human consumption and uh, animals and putting on with crops and stuff. So 
it's now a reasonable business, which is great. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you often hear how um, products from the sea um, make very good elixirs or um, additives to to, um, to products to make uh, for healthy healthy individuals or animals, uh, whatever, or even soils. So good that you got onto that. I mean, I've I've even tried some of your uh, seaweed salt, and it's fine. Um, you know, again, marketing uh, for for your business on the show um there's even there's even a probably what i imagine is the um is the pinnacle in terms of revenue though and that is the uh blue pearl culturing and sales i imagine that's the that's the primo dollar return business would that be right roger well it it was um covid upset that a bit um Mm. but it's coming back again now um, yeah, no, we've it's been a good business over the years. You know, it was doing very well up until 2008, and then it crashed for a few years, and then it was building up to COVID, and then that put a dampener on, you know, pretty much all touristy type businesses. Um, but it's building up again now, which is great. Mm-hmm. So how hard is that? Uh, I think I understand a little bit of the process, and you don't have to give away trade secrets. But it's a it's it's quite a finickety sort of um, concept to to and and the success rate to get the ultimate blue pearl is not high, I gather. No, it's the it's the longest culturing of any pearl, and our percentage success rate is the lowest. But on the positive side, they're the bluest of all pearls and they've got the greatest range of colours. So um, when someone wears a blue pearl as a necklace or a pendant, um, the magic is when someone walks past either wearing it or observing it, the colours change um, and it's the play of colours that attracts the eye and because blue colours in particular, blue, greens, um, golds, uh, uh, you know, they are in a, in a sort of a fluid mixture. Um, the eye really likes it. so. That's why it works as a jewellery item. So could it be called the um, the sort of opal of the sea or opal of the power? It it has been, yes. Mm-hmm. Well, good that you got onto those sorts of uh, ideas. And, uh, you know, I imagine... Um, I imagine you've got good employees behind you because you can't do this all on your own. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> So how many people do you employ in your business? Uh, We've got about 10 people working in our different businesses right now Mm. and a number of people on contract. Right, Right. very good. Roger, since you've been dealing with, you know, uh, with kelp and other, the blue pearl, 
the fishing rights and customary fishing rights and all of this, you must have had to deal with politics in that, just like you dealt with it when you got your buff Vekka here. And uh, you've been you've had some very strong views about that since well over a decade ago, about customary rights, trumping personal rights, common law rights, and people, in fact, recreational fishers having to give away their rights to in, in return for a privilege by whosoever has been given the customary rights in a particular place, which they may or may not have. Do you care to expand on your views and where do you think things are heading? Are things getting better in that regard or do we still see a lot of uh, ethnicity-based uh, chaos deliberately caused there? Um, yeah, I mean, New Zealand's got an amazing fisheries regime. Um, and funnily enough, it was the quota system that allowed the Sea Lord deal um, to happen, which sorted out Maori commercial fishing rights. And through the Sea Lord deal, Maori ended up with 20% of all the quota. And they've leveraged that. And Maori now own about 50% of all quota. Um, a problem that we've now got is there are certain people within Maoridom that want more politically. And um, with our kelp business as an example, mm. um, there are certain people within Naitahu that are trying to take away our rights to kelp. Yet, right. Naitahu has rights of its own. And it's, it's both political and it's personal. Um, so that's, you know, something that I'm affected by. But, you know, there are quite a few things within Maori fisheries now that are a bit of a worry. And one of them is <coughs> that Maori fisheries are quite big businesses, but they're not always run the way that they should be. There's too much um, underhand stuff going on that's the major problem of the, in economic terms, they call it the principal agent problem. And, and what that is, is that's where the principal of the owners, you know, the Maori people within a tribal group, and the agents are the executives that run the companies. And the executives are running roughshod over the owners. And that is a common theme throughout fisheries, Maori fisheries in New Zealand, and that does not bode well. And that needs sorting sooner rather than later. Which political party is showing the fortitude to, is, is it a political thing as well as a business thing? I mean, is it is it past the political stage at that point? <coughs> No, it's it's both both it, it needs exposing. 
Mm-hmm. But I'm, you know, I'm sure ACT is the only one that's prepared to do anything um, at this stage, you know, because, you know, David Seymour understands, you know, the, the economic problem and that Maori privilege should not spill over into the general public. You know, there should be no privilege for anybody, mm. regardless of race. Mm. So that's it's a sort of a vexed issue, uh, isn't it? Uh, we've got lots of these sort of crossovers happening now. And um, one thing that I recall uh, changing tack a little bit more, uh, you were the first person that um, I was uh, party to uh, sort of being on the sidelines with effectively uh, dealing with significant significant natural areas, SNAs, and um, I assume it was the Christchurch City Council. Now, that was probably 2008. Here we are in 2023, and we now have what was always in the RMA, but it's only recently come to light, um, a concept called SASMs, Sites and Areas of Significance to Maori. And effectively, what you won uh, in well, that period when I was back with you in, on the SNA front may now be mean that your whole property could be under a SASM uh, uh, yeah, uh, designation. Have you heard of that in your area? Has it come to light? Uh, that's the first time I've heard that term, but um, there have been sort of significant sites for Maori propping up, you know, all over the place on Banks Peninsula. Mm. And my thinking is um, if it's private property um, and it's freehold, um, the council and Maori can go to hell. Mm. They come to your property by your invitation, at best. Absolutely. At, at best, with your invitation only. And uh, that's my ethos too. I know it's not a common ethos, but, <laughs> you know. Gentlemen, I, I, I'm sort of feeling left out here. Can you give a bit of a back history there of what happened? Why were you two in Christchurch <laughs> at that court case that you're referring to in two, uh, 2008? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll give a bit of background there. Um, I had been objecting to... There, there were about four different designations mm-hmm. um, on our property. There were significant natural areas. There were coastal protection areas. There were height restrictions. And there were outstanding natural landscapes. Mm-hmm. And um, I had objected to those but got nowhere. And then they'd put our rates up. <clears throat> and I I objected to our rates going up. And the argument was that because they'd put all these four restrictions on our land, that the land was worth less now than it was. Mm-hmm. And yep. what what we know about business and economics is that um, assets like land 
are worth the discounted, the future discounted cash flows. That's that's the way that you, in a purest sense, need to value any asset. What is the sum of the future discounted for borrowed money cash flows going out, say, 20, 30 years? And that gives you a figure of what it's worth. Now, the thing about land in particular, rural land that I'm talking about, is that we're only getting, like, with sheep and beef, uh, say, a, a, a 1% to 3% return on investment. And part of the reason for that is that there are a whole lot of things that we don't know about in the future that will be a cash flow, whether that's subdivision or forestry or ecotourism, that can increase the income per hectare or per farm greater than what it is now. And that uncertainty gets factored into the capital price. Now, if you take away that uncertainty of being able to do different things in the future, that means that the value can only be on what you're currently doing. If you're stopping people doing new things, like the things that we were being stopped from doing were putting in new tracks, putting in forestry over a certain size, um, doing ecotourism, doing anything other than sheep and beef. So my argument was, and I made the argument, that the valuation on our land must be based on the return from sheep and beef only. So I argued that our land at the time was worth, um, rateable value was $3 But from an economic point of view, it was only worth a million because I'd taken away our future potential income streams. And I said to Don, um, I'm, what, what do you think, or I asked Don, what do you think I'll get as a um, reduction in rates? And he said, oh, best I've seen is 10%. I said, look and learn, Don. And um, <laughs> I got a 15% reduction in rates. <laughs> Gosh. It, it was the funniest morning of my life. Well, I shouldn't call it funny. It was serious business. But um, at morning tea time, we broke for, for a cuppa. And uh, I said, gee, Roger, you've got them on the ropes. It looks like your job's done. He said, "He said I haven't finished yet. So by lunchtime, <laughs> he'd got a lot more. But see, that, that comes right back to the ethos that I keep talking about in the show, um, Jasper, that it, private property rights and the ability to, to maintain your authority over your own property is fundamental in this society and sadly it's being taken and it's and roger i'd have to say in the ensuing 15 years it's got much worse much worse where the opportunity opportunity the potential opportunity is being taken from private property owners so that's um, that's true 
I'll I'll just tell a little story about how I got my message across. Um, Part of the argument was about ownership rights and use rights. And they were taking away not my ownership rights, but my use rights. Yes. And Mm. use rights are more important than ownership rights. And I said to the council lawyer, I said, um, look, can I borrow your pen, please? And he sort of looked at me slightly sheepishly. Anyway, borrowed his pen. And I said, oh, this is a nice pen. I said, in my experience, lawyers always have a nice pen. I said, do you own this pen? And he said, yes. And I said, well, I now own the use rights. And I shoved it in my pocket. Well, it started to go nuts. He completely lost it. <laughs> and that is it. It's a slippery slope once property rights start going. And we are seeing this between SNAs and SASMs, the latest thing. There's something the other always coming on. And I think, I, I don't know how you viewed the last three years, uh, Roger. But if I was to look back myself, we've just completely lost it over the last three years between COVID and the climate nonsense and all of that's going on. It seems any sort of common sense has just gone out of the window and people are so overwhelmed that most of them just just give up. Well, we are going to have a change in government and a lot of this nonsense will go, but it's really important that those people who champion property rights and understand their significance keep having their voice being heard, which is why your organisation is so important. Mm, it is, it is, uh, Roger. But, um, you know, I know you and I have been at the on the uh, right of centre politically for years. Uh, it's very hard to find anyone that talks about property rights in a sentence uh, in this current electoral cycle uh, um, campaign. Um, it is disappointing. It's like property rights are a turnoff to people when they're a fundamental tenant uh, of uh, tenant of our society. I don't get it. And I, I watched a, um, a video from an American organisation today. They're talking about uh, 30 and 30. That is 30% of America into conservation estate by by 2030. I mean, we have that in New Zealand now, so perhaps we're going to go for 50 by 50, which is another ambition in in the States. So, yeah, this stuff doesn't stop unless we stop it. And, And currently I'm not seeing quite the enthusiasm to do that as as we need to need to have, but you're, you're confident we're going to get a change. And are you confident that, um, that, there can be enough pressure brought to bear on the on whoever is in there, if it's ACT or, and National combined, to make these changes? Because, as I said, I don't hear anyone talking this language. Well, I don't trust National. Um, they've taken, as far as I can tell, all reference to property rights out of their, you know, constitution. Um, you know, there are other parties that are talking property rights apart from Act, but the reality is, you know, will these other parties reach the threshold 
um, and ACT has certainly never wavered from its um, property rights support. Don, mm. your I, thoughts? I, I must say that I'm a bit cynical where ACT is concerned and Don knows my reasons, but, but what are your thoughts on this, Tom? Well, uh, I know what their five freedoms are, and uh, you would think that they would be shouting them from the rooftops every day, but I'm not hearing that this campaign, which is a bit disconcerting, Roger. Um, yeah, I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong, because uh, we've got to have a political party that holds up these fundamentals So, uh, for a civil society to exist. And uh, I'm very concerned that uh, our ability to maintain authority over our property is diminishing by the year and it, it your local councils are doing their level best uh to to make that speed up not slow down so yeah we've got some problems um roger what's uh, you know we could we could talk politics but generally we're we're trying not to be too biased here <laughs> um, uh, clearly clearly we are What's next for Roger Beattie? What's he got on the horizon? I mean, he's he's been talking all day, I can tell, because his voice is we'll be lucky to get the full hour, and I reckon his voice is kind of kind of crack. But um, what's next for Roger Beattie? Um, I've got a couple of projects on the go. Um, I've I've developed a a wind turbine um that is almost invisible. So that solves um, one of the problems that wind turbines have. <clears throat> and I've also developed a way of growing intertidal species, um, nori, the, the seaweed that you have um, around sushi, mm -hmm. and um, Pacific oysters. I can grow them offshore. So the potential there is um, very significant. So I'm I'm going to be working on that shortly. I'm just in the process of sorting a few other things out first. <laughs> well, your energy is um, is palpable, I can tell you. And hey, look, listeners, we we obviously do this via Zoom, and you don't see Roger, but he's grinning from ear to ear as we do this this topic, and uh, and. And he's probably had all day on the phone because I know how his business will be working. He won't be um, he won't be idle at a, for a moment. There's um, there's a lot in what you've said, but in narrowing it right down: property rights, economics, environment, the branding, the marketing, all the stuff works just fine when you're allowed to uh, to do it the way it needs to be done. Uh, you know. What is the recipe for success for New Zealand? Uh, we've clearly got a massive um, government debt, let alone private debt now. Um, what's success look like for New Zealand for Roger Beattie in the next 10 years? Um, smaller government, um, mm. government getting out of the sunlight, um, you know, celebrating entrepreneurial success. Um, giving people a break, um, not trying to pick winners, um, having a level playing field and um, just enjoying life and not being envious, um, you know, celebrating those that do 
wonderful and different and exciting things. Well, not that's writing the them down in red tape. Yeah, that's a prescription for the future that we can all subscribe to, surely. Uh, the fact that what I note in, in farming sense is so many people want to put you into a peas, be peas in a pod. They want to clone you. And uh, it's the last thing we should should be allowing in our businesses. But that's no doubt how it works with cooperatives. They love to sort of pigeonhole you into a, into a little funnel. So, um, Roger, that's a great um, way to perhaps end this interview, uh, your prescription for the next 10 years. I'd implore people that have listened to you to go and perhaps search a country calendar uh, show that you and your dear late wife uh, featured on. Uh, a few years back, how many years? Perhaps six or seven years ago? Uh, no, that was um, 2008. Oh, and, 15. Um, I, yep. I think it was one of the most successful from a, the point of view of um, repeats. It's, it's um, shown repeatedly, um, I think, at least 20 times. Right. Well, it was, I recall it well, and it just shows you 15 years slips by too easily. And um, so listeners, yeah, go and have a look at that. If you want to search it, it'll be there in the Google and the country calendar archives. But Roger, um, we're, we're happy to have had you on our show at short notice. I'm pleased your voice is held together. Uh, and, you know, we can only wish people like you all the best for the future because um, New Zealand needs thousands of Roger Beatties. And uh, well, look, thank you very much, Don. Thank and, you both. Well, great to have you on our show and um, keep in touch. Okay, thank you. Bye. Thank you. Just Breed Bopperai and Don Nicholson with Greenwashed on RCR Reality Check Radio.